0: Amen. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Amal. If you would turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I want to continue um, looking at the book of Acts, and I'm sort of trying to lay a little foundation for it. Hope you're doing well this morning. It's good to see all of you. The gospel that we celebrate as Christians is a gospel that um, proclaims the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, indeed heaven on earth, and when Jesus preached the gospel, he talked about the gospel being the gospel of the kingdom, which means that one day Jesus will come back and he will judge all men, he will destroy evil, and he will usher in heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so Jesus did what he did in living and dying and rising again so that sinners could be forgiven and could enjoy eternal life. And that eternal life is heaven on earth, as we see it in Revelation 21 and 22. And the response of that promise that we have in Jesus is one of repentance and faith. The Lord calls us to turn from our sin, turn to God for mercy, and to receive Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. And one of the fruits of that turning and trusting is to endure, to endure suffering, to endure a hostile world, uh, to endure, like we said last Sunday, a perverse generation. And Acts chapter 2, the portion that we're going to look at and develop more as we go, Um, describes what's going on in the early church right after the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And it's a picture of what the church uh, was like and what we're still supposed to be like, um, even when we're in the midst of a perverse, crooked generation, what we're supposed to look like and how we're to endure uh, those kinds of circumstances. We've uh, called this series The Great Reset. I started off by talking about the fact that there are people talking today at high levels of government, high levels of um, business, about how they would really like to see things reset, changed, uh, in order to, in a sense, usher in a new earth, a um, new season of peace and prosperity and eliminate poverty, eliminate disease, and all those kinds of things. And we try to make the connection to the fact that this most current um, version of this attempt to unite mankind, to try to usher in some sort of utopia apart from God, is just that, a current version of things that have been tried in the past, all the way back to the Tower of Babel, where man sought to unite uh, as one, in opposition to God, to create some kind of utopia. And mankind, sinful mankind, has done that in various ways throughout history. And one day there will will be an ultimate form of that right before Christ comes back. And so there's this talk about resetting, and yet mankind can never achieve what it seeks to achieve apart from God. But one day Jesus will come back, and he will reset everything. Uh, The world will be burned up, so to speak, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so we look forward to that true reset. But the last kind of reset that we're talking about now is not the reset that the world's trying to achieve, not the return of Christ, but repentance. That's a kind of reset. That's a kind of fundamental change in the way that I think and the way that I live in light of the return of Christ, as well as in light of what he's done to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Acts chapter 2 pictures for us the kind of life that needs to endure regardless of how things might be, whether good or bad, and it's a picture of what a repentant life looks like. If we really have a fundamental change in our hearts and mind about God, about ourselves, about Jesus, How does that play out in our individual lives and in our lives as a community? And so let me read for us, uh, beginning in verse 36 through verse 47 at the very end of Acts chapter 2, and we'll continue talking about this picture of the early church today. It says in verse 36, Therefore, that all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified, and kept On exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about three thousand souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so, as I just mentioned, this is a picture of the early church. Uh, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, after the uh, preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost, in anticipation of what we'll see later on in the book of Acts, which is the persecution of the church, as well as the progress of the gospel uh, through the world. And last Sunday we talked about the backdrop for this picture of the early church is what Peter calls a perverse or crooked generation but also the backdrop is the reign of Christ over all things after his ascension and the return of Christ that's been promised. Well, today I want to talk a little bit about what you might call, if we're thinking in terms of a picture, uh, the framework for this picture. We talked about the backdrop, so to speak. At this point, I want to talk about the framework of the picture in terms of these four uh, things being patient, being ordinary, being different, and being faithful. We touched on that just a little bit last week, and I want to expand on it today. One of the things I want to say up front is uh, this picture of the early church could be taken sort of like a Facebook post. For those who use Facebook and are familiar with it, uh, Facebook uh, has a reputation for uh, giving snapshots of people's lives that are basically, uh, many times, very, very um, limited, to say the least, in terms of just giving us the positive side of it. When if you knew everything that was going on in a particular family's life or a particular person's life, you'd realize it's not as idyllic as it appears on Facebook. It's not as perfect, it's not as clean and pure and wonderful as it may seem, though there could be many, many good things about it. It's not always exactly like it appears to us. And you could read this description of the early church and think, wow, this must have been a church that was just perfect. Everybody uh, just loved each other and there was no sin. There was nobody in the church that wasn't really a Christian. There was nobody that ended up walking away from such a wonderful church. And yet if you read the rest of the book of Acts and you read the rest of the book of uh, the New Testament, you find out that, for instance, in Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira who were struck down by God. In Acts chapter 6, you have the complaint of of the widows who weren't being served, the daily serving. You've got Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8, who apparently was baptized, portrayed himself as a real believer. But Peter says, you're still in your sins. You're not saved. Um, You have Acts chapter 11, where um, people rebuke Peter for going to Cornelius' house and uh, preaching the gospel there. You've got Acts chapter 15, where there's the controversy with the Council of Jerusalem about what to do about uh, the issue of uh, circumcision and those kinds of things. And at the end of Acts 15, you have Paul and Barnabas separating over their disagreement over whether or not they should bring John Mark with them on the next missionary journey. So if you just read the, the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, you realize that everything's true in Acts chapter 2 about that church, but it's not the whole picture. And that's why it's helpful sometimes to try to think about that and try to get a framework for um, what we're going to be seeing in this passage as we work our way through it. And so the first thing that I want to talk about is that the New Testament uh, encourages us as we seek to um, follow what the Lord Jesus tells us to do and to flesh out the kind of fellowship that we see in Acts chapter 2, we're told to be patient. And one way to put that is to say is that God calls us to live patiently in the face of suffering waiting for God to fulfill his promises of full and lasting joy. Because, as we said, the backdrop for the picture of Acts chapter 2 is actually a crooked generation, a hostile generation, a hostile culture. And we see in the book of Acts, we see, for instance, in Acts chapter 14, where Paul was stoned and He goes back to the the city in which he was stoned, not very long after he had been stoned, almost to death. And he goes back, and I I can imagine him still with bumps and bruises on his body, talking to the believers there, and what he says is, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so, as great and wonderful as the picture is in Acts chapter 2, It wasn't in an easy world. It wasn't in a suffering-free world at all, and the rest of the book of Acts helps us to see that. If you would, turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 is one of those passages that helps us in thinking through this in terms of what we should expect. Uh, Part of what I want to do today is just briefly touch on the realities of life in the body of Christ that for some people can be disillusioning and can be difficult Um, so in Acts, excuse me james chapter 5 let me read for us uh, beginning in verse 1 it says come now you rich weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful." If you notice in verse 7 at the beginning, it says, therefore. So the first six verses are laying the foundation for that therefore. And the first six verses are talking about the rich, about those who have power over other people and, and can abuse that power. And that's what's being described here is the abuse of power, those who are not treating others rightly. And James is saying, even under those circumstances, even when you're being abused or mistreated, you are to be patient. Until when? Until the Lord comes back or until you die to go be with the Lord. That patience is to continue until the coming of the Lord. Now, verse 6 says, interestingly enough, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And so the implication is there were rich people. There were people in power who were oppressing, who were persecuting Christians. That's the idea. And one of the things we always struggle with is if God loves me and if I am his child, why am I going through what I'm going through? And James is saying that don't be surprised, like Peter said, don't be surprised that you're going through suffering. Don't be surprised that the, those in power are persecuting you. Um, there are people today like Joel Osteen who will write books and preach in such a way that it um, does not prepare people for suffering as believers. He wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. And in that book he said... I've come to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. That's not what James says. James says, don't be surprised if you're hated and persecuted and uh, life is not easy. He says, therefore, be patient, which means to be long-suffering. Be ready to suffer even until the end of your life or until Jesus comes back because you are blessed if you endure. One of the evidences of being a true believer is that we are able, by God's grace, to endure that kind of persecution, that kind of suffering, or whatever it may be suffering-wise. There's a man named Paul Maxwell who wrote some, a number of articles for Desiring God, uh, John Piper's ministry, and just recently he has walked away from the faith. Um, he said on an Instagram post, I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore. And he was someone who wrote a book that a number of Christian leaders said, every Christian ought to read this book. And this man has just said, uh, I'm not a Christian anymore, and he said in one of his uh, articles um, for Desiring God a while back, about four years ago, he said, the Christian life often welcomes suffering or makes our experiences of suffering more intense. God gives us permission to say, this life is harder It certainly was for the Apostle Paul, and we just mentioned Paul stoning, and he had incredible um, experiences of persecution and suffering. Paul Maxwell goes on to say, "...many things would be easier without Christ. Perhaps even healing from trauma could be expedited if we didn't have to juggle our own recovery with questions about divine sovereignty and evil." Well, if you knew more about Paul Maxwell and read other things that he said, you might think that 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 is a key sentence for where he is today. Maybe it would be easier without Christ. Maybe it would be easier to work through my trauma, the, the bad things I've experienced, the suffering that I've experienced, if I could kind of let go of this Christian narrative that for me seems to make it worse. And so my point is, We really need to dig deep into the Word of God if we're going to be prepared for what life throws at us. Because there are plenty of people that are going to want to tell us things that aren't consistent with the Word of God. And we fundamentally don't understand, as Dan highlighted, that all things are used by God to accomplish His purposes and to keep His promises to His people whatever suffering we have to go through. And therefore, we need to be saturated in what God thinks about life and what God tells us to expect. Otherwise, um, we could end up like Paul Maxwell, somehow believing that the Christian life doesn't really adequately address my suffering, doesn't really help me with my suffering. And James would say, Uh, At the very end, uh, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that Paul Maxwell yet has seen that. He's seen the suffering of Job, so to speak, but he hasn't seen that the Lord is compassionate and merciful, even through that suffering. Uh, The word for compassion there means many-bowled. It's the picture of being full of emotion and passion about someone's good. That as hard as life may be, God is incredibly passionate about our good and is stirred up to see us have what is truly good, John Calvin could say, uh, in light of these verses, God will then show himself very merciful, however rigid and severe he may seem to be while afflicting us. He will show himself very, very merciful. Matthew Henry could say, he will make his people an abundant amends, for all their sufferings and afflictions. Let us serve our God and endure our trials as those who believe the end will crown all. That in the end, God only works for his people's good, and therefore we can trust him no matter how hard it might be. One of the things that um, can disturb us as Christians right now in light of all that's going on in our country, is that the, wisp, the wicked seem to prosper, and they're working out their wicked schemes. And in Psalm 37, 7, it says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. The Lord tells us not to fear when the wicked prosper, not to fear the schemes of the wicked, But to wait on God. What does it mean to wait on God? It doesn't mean to do nothing. It actually means to do the kinds of things that we see in Acts chapter 2 and the kinds of things that we're going to talk about now. Um, And we could say he calls us to patiently be ordinary. And uh, what I mean by that is, we are called to live ordinary Christian lives that are both radical and routine. If you would turn to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, back in the New Testament there, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or you can just listen, that's fine too, but... The Bible tells us in one sense that we need to be radical, in another sense we just need to be very routine. And so let me read this passage for us and explain to you what I mean by that. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own ve- vessel and sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And so in James, he encouraged us to wait for God to ultimately make all things right and to grant us the full and lasting joy that he's promised us in christ in the meantime we have to suffer and in the midst of that suffering and waiting for god to fulfill his promise we are to be ordinary but ordinary christians which is a a kind of radical life and a kind of routine life the radical part is that the very first part of this chapter where uh, Paul tells us in verse 3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Another man that um, has been in the news in the last few years is a man named Josh Harris, who was a pastor, he was a leader in the young, restless, and reformed movement. And he also walked away from. The church and from christ uh, it started out with him announcing that he and his wife were getting a divorce and then he followed that up with um a instagram post of his own where he talked about having a massive shift in his faith in jesus he said by all the measurements that i have for defining a christian i am not a christian and you have to wonder why is that and we don't know for sure I'm sure it's probably a complex thing in many respects, but at least part of it is what he says when he said, I have lived the last few years of my life in repentance. And he said, one of the things that I've come to repent of is, he says, his view of sexuality, which is what Paul is talking about at the very first part of this chapter. He says, I specifically want to add to this list of things I'm repenting of. Now, I want to... Uh, address the LGBTQ plus community. I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. And so basically, he's repenting of... The Ordinary Christian Sexual Ethic. God says it's ordinary for Christians to abstain from sexual immorality, to acknowledge that marriage is between a man and a woman, and they're to be faithful to each other in that relationship. And he's saying, I'm repenting of that ordinary, quote, traditional view And so there's a sense in which we're called to be radically ordinary. That from God's perspective, to be ordinary as a follower of Christ, it is to embrace the fact that we don't just embrace whatever the sexual ethic is of our culture. But we embrace what God says is the truly right and wise, loving, and good for human flourishing view of sexuality. Well, during the latter part of the verse uh, or the passage, he talks about what would we call something a little more routine. Where he says in verses, um, verse eleven, he says, "Make it your ambition, your goal, to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need." And so, in one sense, we're to be radical. We're to live to please God, which includes abstaining from sexual immorality. So we'd be radically committed to pleasing God and yet very ordinary in, in a real way. Uh, when he says, I want you to live a quiet life, I want you to attend to your own business, I want you to work with your hands. It's a very ordinary kind of existence. Um, Michael Horton. Um, He's a teacher at Westminster Seminary down in Escondido. uh, uh, Talks about the fact that um, for years, people have been talking about how we need to be radical Christians. Um, Epic Christians, revolutionary Christians, transformative Christians, impactful Christians, life-changing Christians, ultimate Christians, extreme Christians, all that sort of thing. And he talked about the fact that some people are getting a little tired of All the calls to be radical and extreme. And um, he says, Ordinary has, has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary. He says, Who would put a bumper sticker on their car that read, My child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? You know, they have to be extraordinary. All of us have to be extraordinary Christians. We just can't be ordinary Christians. He says, who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count, meaning it can't count if it's ordinary. Um, he says we have to live up to our Facebook profile. Life has to be exciting and wonderful and great, and we're, we're just we're transforming our world. Uh, Someone else, he quotes, says, um, everydayness is my problem. It's easy to think about what you would do in wartime or if a hurricane blows through or if you spent a month in Paris or if your guy wins the election or if you won the lottery or bought that thing you really wanted. It's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. And that person, Rod Dreyer, talks about the growing sense of weariness with the cult of extraordinariness. He says people are beginning to get restless and impatient with um, the ordinary um, or the call to be extraordinary. Um, Michael Horton goes on to say this, and this is really my point. Ordinary does not mean mediocre. Athletes, architects, humanitarians, and artists can vouch for the importance of everyday faithfulness to mundane tasks that lead to excellence, But even if we are not headliners in our own callings, it is enough to know that we are called there by God to maintain a faithful presence in his world. We look up in faith toward God and out toward our neighbors in love and good works. You don't have to transform the world to be a faithful mom or dad, sibling, church member or neighbor. And who knows, maybe if we discover the opportunities of the ordinary, A fondness for the familiar and a wonder for the mundane, we will end up being radical after all. That's what I think Paul is talking about when he says you need to work hard with your hands, you need to make it your ambition to live a quiet life, you need to be faithful where you are, you need to be radically ordinary. I think that's important because, again, we can read things like we find in Acts chapter 2 and think, these believers weren't ordinary, and therefore God isn't happy with me unless I'm extraordinary. But the reality is, he calls us to be radical in the sense that we're we're not embracing the same um, standards of righteousness and lifestyles of the world around us. We are to be radical in that sense, But in another sense, we're to be very faithfully ordinary in our lives. And to me, I think that's meant to be a very freeing thing. It's meant to be a very encouraging thing, that God can do wonderful things through ordinary Christians. People who are just committed to pleasing God day by day, moment by moment, asking God for the grace and wisdom to do so in their circumstances. And so um, the the encouragement for all of us is to think about what that looks like for us. Now, I'm just going to touch on the the last two, and we'll look at these a little more uh, next week. But what do I mean by being different? What I mean by being different is everyone— doesn't play the same role either in the family or in the church and therefore there's a sense in which we as christians are to be similar we certainly need to have the same heart of repentance and faith toward jesus but the way we live our lives and how we function in the family and how we function in the church is going to be very different and the reality is there was an issue in the church in corinth about that, that there were those who were saying, if you're not just like me, then there's something wrong with you. And it's amazing how debilitating that kind of idea can really be. It must be in light of the way Paul looks at First Corinthians 12 and talks about it, and we'll talk more about that next week um, as we think about what God calls us to, the last thing is, we'll talk more next week about being faithful. That ultimately all of this is about being faithful. That God is the one who's in charge of the fruit of our lives, but we are responsible for the faithfulness of our lives. It's very, very clear in passages like Matthew 24, where the Lord Jesus says, the teaching on the return of Christ is to make us alert to what's going on around us, And it's to encourage us to be faithful to the very end. And that there are all kinds of things that tempt us away from being faithful. That temptation can be suffering, like we talked about first of all. Is that we can have things that happen in our lives that are so painful that we assume some wrong things about God and about ourselves based on that suffering and we turn our back on Christ. But there can also be those who are tempted by what the world offers, uh, the pleasures of this world. And we can begin to think that, you know, maybe this ordinary life of being a Christian isn't really all that there is and isn't really the thing to do. Maybe it would be much more exciting and much more fulfilling if I followed what other people were doing. And the reality is, um, you hear more and more about people who are becoming what they call ex-evangelicals. They've grown up in the church, they've even professed faith in Christ, but they're walking away. They're walking away from Christ and they're walking away from the church. And that's really the burden of my heart is, it's not because they see God as he is. It's not because they see themselves as they are. It's not because they see the gospel as it really is. It's because they're not seeing it. And it's my prayer that there would not be any of us in here who walk away from Christ, but that we see him for who he is and that we know that he is the only answer for our sin and the only one who can satisfy our souls. And we'll look more at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just your word. Thank you for the time in it. We desire that you would feed us, that you would renew our minds, that you would help us to see things from your perspective. There's no doubt, Father, there's a lot of pain in our world. There's a lot of pleasures offered in this world. There are a lot of people that are uh, proclaiming what they call truth that isn't truth at all so there's no doubt father we live in a dangerous what your word calls a perverse generation we need to know the truth we need to see christ for who he is we need to know that he is the only answer for our sin that he is the only answer for our longings for true full and lasting happiness And we pray, Father, that you would ground us even more in the truth during these days when things might get much more difficult in our country and are getting more difficult in various ways. Father, we desire to be faithful to the end. We desire to live to please you and to be the ordinary Christians, both radical and very routine, that you call us to be. And we pray that you would help us to be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus, to proclaim him as an able and willing savior for sinners. And to do so, even if we have to suffer for the gospel, even if we have to die for the gospel, we pray for grace to do just that, whatever that death might be. We thank you, Father, for this time. Please, minister your truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.